Welcome to the Real Estate Guys radio program. It's a brand new year, which means we've got lots to think about this week on the show. And next week, we're going to talk to some of the smartest people we know about what they see happening in the new year. It's our predictions panel, part one today on the Real Estate Guys radio program. Worldwide demand is making coconuts one of the highest yielding cash crops available today. Coca-Cola, Pepsi, and many high net worth individuals have invested billions of dollars into coconuts for strong growth and solid long-term income. Yields could be as high as 18% or more per year. Capital appreciation and exceptional income for up to 60 long years could be an absolutely brilliant investment to pass on to future generations. For more information, qualified accredited investors should email coconuts at realestateguysradio.com. Diversify wisely with direct ownership of fully managed coconuts on prime farmland close to the beautiful Costa Rican border. Email coconuts at realestateguysradio.com. This announcement does not constitute either an offer to sell securities or a solicitation of an offer to purchase. Offering made by prospectus only. For more information, email coconuts at realestateguysradio.com. Welcome to the Real Estate Guys radio show and Happy New Year. I'm Robert Helms with me as usual, Coast Financial Strategist, Russell Gray. Hey, Robert. You know, halfway through January, there's a lot going on. We had our amazing goals event in the first of the year out in Lake Las Vegas and people are just buzzing. Things are great. And everyone wants to know, what's this year going to be like? Yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot of things changing this year. We got a new tax law. We are now one year into the Trump administration. We've got a new Fed chairman coming on board, and so we don't exactly know what that's going to look like. Uh, we have stock markets that have been hitting record highs, and there is a lot of buzz about the creation of jobs and the rebirth of manufacturing in the United States. And of course, there's the drama and the turmoil with regard to international issues, geopolitics, and in, in trade deals in particular, which has a more direct impact. Certainly, military spending can have an impact on real estate investors and the economy. And you know, if we end up going to war or get further involved in skirmishes, you know, you're you're going to see some impact from all of that. So there's a lot of different things coming in, a lot of variables. It isn't steady as she goes, that's for sure. Well, as real estate investors, we have to look at more than just the real estate market we're in because lots of things feed the very need for real estate, housing, retail, office, agricultural. And so it's kind of a big picture time of year. And we thought a great thing to do out of the gate would be to interview some folks who have an opinion. Now, if you listen to the real estate guys for any length of time, you recognize a couple of things. Uh, first of all, we like to look larger than just real estate. So we have folks in the show who are not pigeonholed into real estate, but look at broader picture economics. Well, look at it this way. If, if you look at your real estate holdings as floating in an ocean, an economic ocean, and the ocean has waves and currents and things that affect it, if you're not paying attention to that, you're not going to be able to navigate your real estate portfolio like a ship through the changing seas. Yeah, which is why we do it. So that's the first thing is that we look broader than just real estate. The second thing is that the vast majority of all the interviews we ever do are face-to-face. -face. Right. We work really hard to get in front of people because that's where the connections are made. That's where relationships get formed. And you usually get much better interviews. Now, it's subtle. Not to take anything away from folks that have 100% call-ins. It's much more efficient to be able to sit in your studio and take calls. But relationship-wise and getting to the real information, and for us, the conversation before and after, so we work really hard to get face-to-face. -face. There was no way we could do that right. with the amount of information we're going to bring you in the next couple of weeks. So we reached out to our, our network, and you're going to, this week and next week, hear a few folks that maybe you've heard before and definitely a few that you haven't, as we ask some of the smartest people we know in different areas of the economy and the world what they think about what's going to happen. It's part one of our predictions panel. There's going to be a lot to learn and a lot more next week. It's going to be fun today on the Real Estate Guys radio program. Hi, I'm G. Edward Griffin, author of The Creature from Jekyll Island, a second look at the Federal Reserve. And you're listening to The Real Estate Guys. Welcome back to the Real Estate Guys radio program. Thanks for tuning into the program. It's a brand new year, and we're trying to figure out what the year is going to look like from a real estate perspective. The gentleman about to join us really pays attention to what's happening in terms of what builders and developers are looking at. I've been following his work for a long time from John Burns Consulting. Let's welcome John Burns. Hello, sir. Uh, thanks. Happy New Year to you. I know uh, you are often looking down the road for what we're seeing in terms of trends and so forth. And uh, tell us some of the big picture stuff you see for the new year. Well, the, uh, the economy is continuing to grow. The supply of new homes coming to market continues to be extremely stagnant. In fact, uh, 
if we, we count all the home builder community counts all over the country and they're flat year over year. So the, the, the home builders have not been able to grow their businesses more than just a little bit. And in that industry, we're expecting a little more M&A. We've actually seen some foreign capital come into the industry buying companies, so that's pretty interesting. And we think the, the new tax package is going to be a boost to the economy, particularly the entry-level buyers and the homes priced around the median home price. So we're expecting to see some more activity there. And we're, you know, and we're also, this is year number nine now of the economic expansion. So we're keeping an eye out on what risks are out there uh, that could cause an extra recession. And we're finding quite a few, but none of them are really in the real estate industry. They're, they're in other industries. Yeah, well, that's interesting, right? Because we're always looking for what's the event that's going to trigger what the next downturn is going to look like. And no one knows for sure. But from a housing perspective, last time, a lot of it was centered around lending, obviously. Uh, this time, who knows? But what are some of the things you're looking at in terms of real estate that would be that uh, kind of canary in the coal mine, if you will? Yeah, th- there's really not many canaries in a coal mine in real estate but I, I don't want to sound Pollyanna because real estate, you know, the real estate, the number one important thing is the economy. <laughs> and if we have the healthcare industry collapse or a stock market collapse or those sorts of things, that impacts real estate. That's what we're looking at. And we, we did a white paper on all the industries out there. The healthcare industry has, has grown dramatically over the last 20 years, you know, built, built on a, a, a good theory that the demographics are going to be good for, for healthcare and biotech, but I think they've grown too fast and, and borrowed too much money, so I would keep my eye on a lot of the healthcare companies. Clearly, the valuations of the tech companies are just insane in my mind. Even the ones that are making money are, are being valued at three times their revenue. So we're getting teed up there for maybe some sort of a stock market correction. But when I've looked at those type of corrections in the past, in, in when housing's in the current state that it's in, which is still a relatively low level of uh, construction volume, the downturn has been mostly a hiccup in housing and not really a downturn. So that's what we're coaching our clients is, hey, there's a lot of risks out there uh, in other industries. So just proceed cautiously and Frank, I can tell you, the industry is not the the housing industry is not taking a lot of risk right now. Guys are not levering up; they're running their business very carefully. Everybody remembers the last downturn. I think we're set up for a pretty good run here, even even though there may be some hiccups along the way. Well, that's a great point because obviously housing is one of the things that uh, it serves a basic human need. I can sit out the stock market for a couple of years, but I can't sit out housing. I've got to interact financially with housing one way or another. A lot of our listeners would buy houses for you know rental purposes. And of course, there's more tenants to today than there have been in the past. But at the same time, they do look at long-term appreciation and those kinds of things. When you have this, this well, I won't say housing shortage, but we're headed that way, right? If we don't build more houses, the, the numbers kind of show that, that uh, we're going to be in trouble in that regard, don't they? No, that's right. So a little bit of plug for a book we wrote a year ago on housing demographics called Big Shifts Ahead, where we, get, we spent 9,000 hours of research getting under some of that pent-up demand, if you will. And just to, to share a few things with you, I, I agree with what you just said, but we, we got clearly very overbuilt in 05 and 06 to the point where during the downturn, we had three and a half million more housing units in, in our view than we needed in the country. And we still have about a million more than we need. Now you go to places like Texas and Arizona and that's not the case at all, but you go to the Midwest and the Northeast and there, there's still some excess vacancy. So it is pretty geographic specific, but to your point, I think we need 13.7 million housing units built over a 10 year period. We're only building 1.25 right now per year, so we're under that average, and we're really struggling to get to the average. And one of the other things I think that your listeners may want to know is the construction costs have gotten so out of control, and I'm not talking just about uh, lumber and materials. I'm talking about local regulations and the difficulty getting land entitled, that it really has become extremely hard for new homes to be built under 200,000 or even under 250,000 in many areas. So uh, that's keeping supply back because the heart of the demand is around $250,000. 
So particularly in the lower price points, I think you've got very little risk of overbuilding. Now, what, what do you think about the demographics? You know, there's a lot of talk about the millennials and what their demand will be for housing. I know you've written about the baby boomers and how that is changing. How might that affect what we see in terms of, you know, the retail buyer, if you will? Yeah, so that that's why we wrote the book, because it was all so confusing. And, and the, the generational definitions like millennials, they go from 1984 to 2002, depending on what your definition is. So, so Mark Zuckerberg is a millennial, and my daughter in high school is a millennial. So right. it's hard to make a generalization. But what we did is we broke the population down by decade born, so you can compare 10-year periods to 10-year periods to 10-year periods. And uh, we laid it out pretty clearly in the book. But I'll, I'll tell you what I believe is happening, is those born in the 1980s, call them the early millennials, if you will, more educated by far than any group before them, but have the student debt to show for it, graduated right into the Great Recession. So, of course, they had to delay a lot of life's events. But they're getting through this and starting to have families later in life now. And although they may be saddled with some student debt, they're far more likely than ever before to have two college-educated people who are working in the house so we're actually seeing a rise in entry-level buying by that profile of homes that are pretty expensive, three $350,000 or maybe even higher than that. You go to California, it could be seven dollars $800,000. But they're choosing to buy something closer to work, closer in, closer to the things to do that might be a resale home, that might be a brand-new townhome, rather than spend an hour and a half on the road. That's that profile. There is the profile that's not quite as affluent as I just mentioned who has to continue to drive to, to qualify to be able to buy something. And interestingly, one of the shifts that we've seen is that there's more couples now saying, okay, you stay at home with the kids and I'm going to work. So we're, we're seeing a, a decline in dual income households there, and, and that's driving some of the outlying areas. Younger millennials born in the 1990s, they're forming their households and they're renters today. But I'll, I'll give you an analogy, and then I'll let you ask me a question. They have a lot in common with those born in the 1930s who saw the Great Depression and food rationing in World War II. They saw the Great Recession. They're behaving very conservatively financially, and the best example of that is they're using debit cards, not credit cards. While they want to become homeowners, they're just not going to lever up and take the risk that their parents did because of what they saw early in their, or early in their teen years. All right, good stuff. The book is called Big Shifts Ahead, Demographic Clarity for Businesses. And of course, that's any type of business. But uh, what John does with most of his time is at John Burns Real Estate Consulting. You've got a great team there. And uh, just always uh, really enjoy the, the angle you guys take and the research that you do. We've had a chance to hear from some of your teammates out there on the road at uh, events and, and so forth. But uh, tell us for, for you know your client, someone who's building something like that, who, who's, the, who's the target uh, client for the work you do, John? Oh, okay. Yeah, we, we work for all, all the big public home builders. I mean, literally all of them. They subscribe to some research reports that we put out to monitor the health of the market, and then we're helping them plan their business and allocate capital and doing feasibility on their new development. And then we also do a lot of work for the building products companies to put the right products in the house and build the main um, factories in the right places. And interestingly, we've, we've gotten really big in the single-family rental business recently, which didn't even exist six years ago. Well, it did exist, but not with players that own 5,000 or more homes. And I know a lot of your clients do that. I'm a big believer in that business going forward. I think some of the technologies have changed the game there to make it easier to manage the properties. And I think a lot of people said for, the, for those same reasons I thought I was mentioning earlier about debt, there's just going to be a percentage of people who just don't want to be saddled with a 30-year mortgage. They would like to be homeowners, but when push comes to shove, they're going to stay renters. And, and I'm talking about people that make good money. Yeah, good stuff. Well, hey, we sure appreciate your input today, and Happy New Year to you. You too, Robert. Thanks. There's John Burns from John Burns Real Estate Consulting. More when we come back for our predictions panel 2018. I'm your host, Robert Helms. Real estate investment advice right in your mailbox. Sign up for the free Real Estate Guys newsletter at realestateguysradio.com. If you love real estate and have always wanted to own your own business, listen up. 
The real estate guys and their panel of experts want to teach you how to go full-time fast in the real estate syndication business. These next few years may go down in history as one of the best times ever to acquire investment real estate. There are deals everywhere if you know where to look and how to assemble the resources. The Secrets of Successful Syndication Seminar will show you how to make big money doing big deals from a team of experts that have syndicated projects totaling more than $1 billion. Don't wait for someone to give you a raise or create a job for you. Attend the Secrets of Successful Syndication and learn how to build a team, raise capital, find deals, and make full-time money in six months or less. Go to realestateguysradio.com and click on events. All the big players use syndication as a way to diversify risk, optimize profits, and earn big money. You can too. Go to realestateguysradio.com and click on events. Are you ready to profit in paradise? Hi, it's Robert Helms. And if you think real estate investing means tenants, toilets, and termites, think again. Located just a short plane ride from the U.S., a virtually untouched paradise awaits. The beautiful country of Belize. When you go to Belize with the Real Estate Guys, you'll spend four fabulous days discovering one of the most intriguing real estate markets I've ever seen. With its jungle rainforests, pristine beaches, and 81-degree turquoise water, Belize is one of the most beautiful places on Earth. Plus, it's considered one of the top seven tax havens in the world. Belize property is on the rise, and many experts think the best is yet to come. But don't just take my word for it. Come experience Belize firsthand at our upcoming investor field trip. When you join us, you'll discover the many reasons we love Belize, like tremendously undervalued beachfront land, super low taxes, ease of doing business, and so much more. Get the details at realestateguysradio.com. Just click on events. See paradise for yourself. Click events at realestateguysradio.com, and I'll see you in beautiful Belize. Hi, this is Peter Schiff, and you are listening to The Real Estate Guys. Welcome back to The Real Estate Guys radio program. Heard every weekend on this great radio station all the time at realestateguysradio.com. And in over 190 countries, it's uh, the beginning of a new year, and we're taking a look at where we might be headed. Always hard to figure it out. It's a little murky, but it's why we've assembled all these amazing folks. And uh, this next gentleman is a guy who never fails to impress me when he does a presentation. We've been honored to have him on the show several times, but it's been too long. Welcome back to the Real Estate Guys radio program, the CEO of U.S. Global Investors, Mr. Frank Holmes. Hey, Frank. Good day, my friend, and how are you? I'm just fine. I'm excited about a new year, and I know we've got lots to look forward to. You know, you're looking at a ton of stuff, and of course, you guys invest in lots of different places and asset classes and, and so forth. And before we're done, I want to talk about uh, what you've been uh, recently uh, sharing with us on, on blockchain and all that. But let's talk big picture. We've got a, a new year coming. We've got a new Fed chair coming in. What are some of the big, big strokes, the big picture stuff that you see for the new year? Well, I, I, the numbers, bad news has always been good news as governments panic and try to stimulate the economy. And so although U.S. payrolls rose stronger than expected, 228,000 November, the annual percentage growth rate this year and every year since 2010 has been below the average change for non-recession years since 1968. Wow. So how far rates will go before they start stifling the economy? We just have to have the faster fiscal policy streamlining of regulations and regulators and, and the fact that we have a 75% drop in IPOs, we have more indices uh, than there are public companies, we have what's called ICOs, initial coin offerings, bringing in almost $3.5 billion and 1,000 new coins this year, usurping money away from junior capital markets because they're so difficult to deal with. Uh, I think there's some real changes in the formation of capital. Uh, and so I think the government won't be able to raise rates too much in, uh, until probably by June this will be a peak. Now we've gone to a flat yield curve. So I'm not as bearish as most people are because there's some real headwinds and the governments will do everything they're trying to do to maintain that economic growth. They sure will. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. We always see when there's a lot of doomsday and a lot of those things out there. But in the meantime, this is the longest, you know, recovery and we still see some vibrancy out there. Uh, obviously, a lot of our our listeners are real estate investors and they're looking at not only the markets in terms of real estate, but financing interest rates, those kinds of things. Uh, what, what, do you, what do you see on that horizon? Well, you know, it's a great question because uh, the crowdfunding model is estimated $50 billion went in there outside of the stock market. And uh, a lot of money has gone into uh, real estate and private transactions. And I believe that the SEC has cleared uh, that you can do crowdfunding up to $50 million to make an asset liquid. And, and I'm, I'm not sure exactly, but someone told me that this also includes real estate. So I think that real estate is going to remain very attractive. 
the cost uh, for borrowing is, is really not punitive. I first got in this business, it was rising from 12 to 20%. Uh, it's a very different uh, world today. And as I said earlier, I, I think that if we can get some real fiscal restraints and stimulation, and uh, then, then you could have this raising rates, and that would have a bigger impact negatively on real estate. So I'm bullish on real estate. I really am. It's fantastic. Good stuff. Well, hey, let's talk a little bit about uh, cryptocurrency and blockchain. You have more than a cursory knowledge of this because you've been involved, uh, in addition to your work at U.S. Global Investors, you've uh, been involved with uh, the, the high blockchain technologies. And uh, in fact, that's a really interesting part of all this. It's not just a cryptocurrency, as you mentioned, a thousand new coins. Give us the, uh, the nickel tour on, on blockchain. Well, I went to try to launch a product and, and basically the regulators say no. Canada, U.S., because they were very concerned about anti-money laundering laws. And and that supersedes all new regs. And the same thing with KY uh, issues and risks. So I, I sat back and said, uh, I went to a conference um, called Consensus in New York and saw Abigail Johnson, the CEO of Fidelity, speak. And she doesn't speak at an investment conference, but she's speaking at a blockchain conference. And, you know, they have $2.5 trillion in assets. They've always been able to remain competitive because they remain in innovative. Uh, they have all their employees on Bitcoin wallets. Uh, I said, something's happening bigger than I really knew. And then I find out that the New York Stock Exchange, because I'm launching my GoAU, my Smart Beta Gold uh, ETF, uh, which, based on regressional studies, outperforms the GDXJ 94% of the time in rolling 12-month periods for a decade. And it's doing exactly that since we launched it in June. They tell me in, in the New York Stock Exchange that they invested in Coinbase. And so did USAA up the street, the insurance company. And, and, on, and all of a sudden, I find out that you can open an account at, at Fidelity's uh, National Securities, which is the second biggest discount brokerage firm in the country, in the world. And you can have money in Coinbase, and it can, it can show up in your Fidelity accounts. And the same thing with USAA. So something's big happened in this space, but I couldn't launch a product. And my friend called me and said, you know, my young guys like this, do you have any, uh, what do you think about his investing? And I said, yes, let me do some due diligence. And I said, immediately, I became the chairman. I put in $5 million. And I basically took Grow, as a, which is a public company which manages the mutual funds, uh, a share of Hive behind each share of Grow. And, um, and Hive took off. I mean, Hive went up tenfold uh, from its investment because it, it was the first company to uh, what they call mine coins. And we mine coins in Iceland where you need to have cheap electricity, geothermal, good energy. Uh, and, and so I said, wow, we're going we're gonna to basically be mining virgin coins. That means we don't have any AML problems. And what they call the first coin is called Genesis. And the partnership, funny enough, is with, with Hive, is with Genesis Mining, who is the largest cryptocurrency miner in the world. A bunch of mathematicians from Germany. They have a multi-billion dollar private company, uh, the latest of technology. So it was, it was the, sort of a triangle. Here you have Hive. You have the Genesis, which is private, which is the biggest mining entity, sharing their intellectual capital. They own 30% of Hive. And U.S. Global was a perfect triangle, and everything took off. So if you look at stocks like that, you have to buy them in Canada, and the ticker is HIVE. And then when you go to those uh, places where they, they, these facilities where they mine these coins, they sound like a beehive. So I'm very bullish. Yeah, well, and you know, it's hard not to just pay attention to what's happening price-wise with Bitcoin. But to your point, the underlying technology is really so much different than that. It's not about any one cryptocurrency. What, what's your kind of long view on this idea when it, it really is, you know, a different idea, different way of thinking about cryptocurrency and the future? Well, think of the end. The internet never took off until email came along. And blockchain never took off until Bitcoin all of a sudden went through $1,000. Uh, and you saw all the major banks, you know, the financial institutions uh, may be talking negative regarding Bitcoin, etc. But they have filed 2,700 patents of how to use blockchain technology. And that's the real big backbone of this. You're able to drop down the cost tremendously that the New York Stock Exchange said they could be Uberized by this because you could all of a sudden have blockchain exchanges that you can trade 24-7. And every transaction settles in 10 minutes, and you never have failed deliveries. So the whole concept of how the protocols of the blockchain technology are very significant for real estate, for insurance, uh, you're entitled to your company. Uh, if you want to move money, it's becoming very expensive. And I believe that a lot of the banks, like the, that's where they make their money, but they're going to get Uberized with this blockchain technology with new startups coming, like Airbnb has done to real estate, and uh, Uber has done to the taxi cab medallions around the world. 
And I think that that's where we, we're moving in that direction. Uh, so this blockchain, is, there's some good articles that are out there that they'll Uberize or Amazon eyes uh, 18 different industries. Yeah, amazing stuff. Hey, before I get let you get out of here, Frank, it's always great to talk to you about gold because you mentioned your gold ETF, certainly. But but uh, every time you've had this show, you've had an interesting and sometimes different uh, opinion uh, about gold and where it's headed and, and some of the reasons why. What's uh, what, what should we look for in the new year when it comes to gold? The biggest headwind is going to be these tax concessions coming through in America and making America so competitive on a corporate basis globally. And that could be a strong you know, tailwind for the, for the dollar. But I don't think it's going to be really long-lived. I think I'm very bullish on the gold. We've got peak supply. And the world continues to print money at rapid rates. And that's one reason for Bitcoin taking off, because there's only 21 million coins that will eventually be out there. And if you backed out the lost coins and one's not produced, there's only 10 million coin float. So you, that's one of the reasons why, because you can't print more than's out there, but so many pay, fiat money that's in the, globally in the scene has been printing money by the trillions of dollars. I mean, are you aware that the Swiss have been buying Apple and buying stocks in America because they go to raise a billion Swiss francs and, and only 100 million is bought by the public, 900 million the government buys. So now they get all this right. cash, they create paper out anywhere, they go buy uh, stocks, and they now own 15% of the stock market. The same thing is in Japan. The same thing is in South Korea. So you're witnessing a cartel of the G20 countries which are basically um, not consumed with global trade as you are with synchronized tax and regulation, and guess what? Trump is a disruptor. And just like Nigel Farage, who I had lunch with it was a couple of weeks ago in, in London uh, and spoke on a panel with him, uh, they look at themselves as being great disruptors like Amazon is. Uh, if you're a consumer of Amazon's products, you love it. But if they go into your business uh, and how they're going to drop the cost and make you basically irrelevant, uh, you don't like it. Uh, and that's what's happening in the capital markets. So I think there's going to be lots of positive change uh, taking place for next year that's going to be good for gold. I think that we're going to see negative real interest rates. We're going to see inflation pick up uh, very easily, and I think we have peak supply in gold. So that's an important factor. Uh, GDP, and remember the Chinese currency tracks the trend of the dollar. The dollar is down this year, and you can't believe it. Gold is up. Gold is up over 10%, and it's almost like it's done nothing. And so I always like to remind readers that since the year 2000, uh, gold has done two times what the S&P has done. Hard to believe long-term, and then short-term this year is still a double-digit. So I remain very bullish on gold. Uh, and the other last thing is that the Chinese, to go and raise money to have currency trading with the Saudis, guess what? They had to collateralize that with bullion. So they've been buyers of bullion. It slowed down just recently, but they've been buyers of bullion. They've got they collateralized their, their bonds or their money against that if they, if they want the Saudis to take their paper. So that comes back that gold is a very important asset class. All right, great stuff. Frank Holmes is the CEO of U.S. Global Investors. They're easy to find on the web at usfunds.com. They've got great mutual funds, ETFs, and a ton of excellent research. And it's always a pleasure to hear from you, my friend. Thanks so much for uh, joining us on the program and a happy new year to you. Thank you. And same with all of your listeners. Happy investing. You're tuned to the Real Estate Guys radio program. I'm your host, Robert Elms. Need help with your real estate investment portfolio? Check out the resources page at realestateguysradio.com. Forbes rated Memphis the best cash flow market in the nation. And our good friend Terry Kerr at Mid-South Homebuyers has been the premier turnkey rental property provider in Memphis for over 13 years. With an A-plus rating for the Better Business Bureau, Terry has renovated over 750 houses. Real Estate Guys listeners have snapped up hundreds. Discover what these satisfied investors already know. Mid-South's properties are completely renovated with a one-year warranty and a lifelong rental guarantee. They're affordable, well-managed, and easy to own. Perfect for beginning investors and veterans alike. Get in on the action. Contact Terry and his team via email at midsouth at realestateguysradio.com. This portion of the Real Estate Guys radio program is brought to you by International Coffee Farms, where you can own a parcel of land in your very own specialty coffee farm in Panama for as little as $15,000. Here's how it works. Deeded half-acre parcels entitled Specialty Coffee Farms in Boquete, Panama are turnkey managed professionally on your behalf by a team of local experts. Sustainable average income is estimated at 12% and cash flow can begin within 12 to 15 months from the date of your parcel ownership. 
International Coffee Farms' mission is to own and operate specialty coffee farms that are economically, environmentally, and socially sustainable. As part of this mission, 20% of the gross profits of each farm is committed to a socially sustainable fund to improve the lives of the Panamanian coffee farm workers and their families. International Coffee Farms currently owns and operates nine specialty coffee farms with half-acre parcels available for immediate ownership. To find out how you can become a coffee farm owner in Paquete, Panama, email coffee at realestateguysradio.com. That's coffee at realestateguysradio.com. Hi, I'm Aaron Katusa, the chairman of Katusa Research. You're listening to The Real Estate Guys. Welcome back to The Real Estate Guys radio program. Heard every week on this great radio station all the time at realestateguysradio.com. A new year is just about here, and we're taking a look at the 2018 and some predictions. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the Federal Reserve, some changes there. Let's welcome back to The Real Estate Guys radio program, Danielle DiMartino Booth. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Fabulous. Always great to uh, have you on the phone with us. And we're going to talk today a little bit about, of course, all the things happening that the folks see in, in the future. But you've spent lots of years as a Federal Reserve insider, and we've got a change in the Fed, right? So what, what is that going to look like in the, uh, in the coming year, Danielle? You know, it's really difficult to say. I mean, there's still a dearth of warm bodies on the Federal Reserve Board. Uh, Trump still has three people, three vacancies to fill. So it will be all eyes on, um, on the White House in 2018, just as it was in 2017. But what we do know is that of the district bank presidents that are rotating onto voting, that we've got a little bit more hawkish contingency than what we once had. Um, and we know that Randy Quarles and that Marvin Goodfriend, assuming that he is confirmed, uh, have a little bit more of a discipline-based approach to monetary policymaking. That whole negative interest rate thing with, with Goodfriend aside, pray God we don't go there. And then I, you know, I, I have been very public in dissenting against this consensus opinion that Jay Powell himself is some kind of a Janet Yellen clone. Uh, I push back on that. He publicly stated that he had regretted voting for the last iteration of quantitative easing. And I'm hoping, given some of the things that we're seeing out of the European Central Bank, that we don't see our Federal Reserve go that way if 2018 does see a slowing economy. Yeah, and it's so hard to tell. And that's part of the thing is none of us really have crystal balls. We're just trying to take what we've learned and, and look forward. You know, anytime there's a, a change, we don't know what's going to happen. But reading the tea leaves, if you will, there's definitely what they state and what the media expects in terms of, you know, the Fed raising rates and, and that kind of thing. And yet then they see what happens, you know, how, how the, the reaction is in the economy and make adjustments. So it is hard to tell. What's your feeling about what we're going to see in terms of uh, Fed interest rates for the coming Year. You know, it's really interesting. The December rate hike has been so well broadcast that everybody's got that kind of baked in their cake. But you can't make a plausible uh, argument right now that anything is baked into the cake in terms of 2018 rate hikes. You know, we, we've got these, these massive uh, 2017 was clearly the year of the natural disaster. They've just uh, labeled the one that's going on in California as the fifth worst in modern California history. So we'll continue to see a lot of the quote-unquote sugar high uh, from the rebuilding efforts in, in Puerto Rico, in Florida, in Texas, in California. But you're starting to see signs that the U.S. household simply is buckling under the strain of the inflation that the Fed refuses to measure properly. That's housing inflation. And, and we're seeing an increase in defaults and delinquencies that suggest that we're at the end of this economic cycle. And I, you know, I put it on Federal Reserve policymakers to pay close attention to what they're seeing in the data and not just go with what the headlines are telling them because they could over tighten the economy easily into recession in 2018. Well, and this quote-unquote recovery has been one of the longest on records. And if you just follow logic at everything that goes up must come down. And we are starting to see those cracks in the dam. And of course, a lot of the folks today are sharing with us what they see in terms of what that may manifest like. Nobody put a timeline on it. But what are the things we'd be looking for if, uh, if that path was to continue? Well, I think that you would look for deceleration in capital expenditures Few people appreciate, put the tax reform chatter aside, few people appreciate that companies really have been investing in capital expenditures these last few quarters. So we're going to see if that's going to continue. But for me, after Hurricane Harvey and this temporary blip to car sales, 
One of the things I'm going to be watching the most closely in 2018 is car sales to see where this economy is headed. We're already seeing a tick up. We, we've, we've been seeing a tick up for months in auto loan delinquencies, but now we're starting to see it in, on, on the mortgage side as well and on the credit card side as well. I'm going to be keeping my eye on that inflection point, which I think car sales will tell us a lot about, and the yield curve, the difference between the two-year treasury and the 10-year treasury yield. It's, it's at the lowest since 2007, and it is broadcasting a very clear message Again, I hope the Fed is paying attention to. Good stuff. You know, last time we had you on the show, we talked a bit about uh, commercial real estate. That's one of the many things you follow. And of course, for real estate investors, most of our audience, uh, what they're concerned with when it comes to interest rates is how that manifests on the lending side. I want to get a loan on a, a house, an apartment building, those kinds of things. Any insight into what we might be looking for there? Well, I think that I, I think that 2017 was probably the year that we saw a lot of bloodshed in, in brick-and-mortar retail. I think what, what real estate investors in particular are not paying attention to is the fact that we have equally overbuilt restaurant chains in this country, and we've built too many hotels. So it, it's going to be make or break for a lot of restaurant chains in the first half of the year, and I think some of the bankruptcy announcements that we'll see, not, not going for hyperbole here, but I think some of the bankruptcy announcements that we see are going to take investors by surprise. But when you begin to add up all of this empty space, you're talking about deep implications for commercial real estate, and you're going to have to see whether or not lenders are going to open up those loan books or not. Right now, I would have to say, again, I see commercial real estate at a turning point. You had a uh, good piece on that in, uh, on your newsletter about the restaurant industry. In fact, at Money Strong, you uh, put out a bunch of great stuff, and uh, you talked recently a little bit about cryptocurrency. You can't turn on the, the news anywhere and not hear something about Bitcoin, now Bitcoin futures, and all of that. What do folks need to know about cryptocurrency moving forward? Well, they need to know that the, the exchanges of the world are not their friends. I think that it was one of the most reproachably irresponsible acts of some of these exchanges to start listing futures on Bitcoin because what did we see when that happened? We saw yet another surge. You know, I, I was listening to Bubble Vision and they're calling it an asset class. I think that's a bit of a stretch. I mean, maybe they need to put asset class in quotes because it's not. And investors need to be very wary of chasing this. It is so reminiscent, not of 2006, 2007, but it is so very reminiscent of 1988, 1989, when we saw anything that put a .com after their, after their name could do an initial public offering, and away we go. But again, there wasn't any collateral. There wasn't any asset that was backing this. And I draw a parallel between what we saw in, in the go-go late 1990s to the mania and speculation we're seeing in Bitcoin. All right, good stuff. Hey, before I let you get out of here, I know uh, nobody knows for sure what's going to happen next, but at some point we can say there will be an economic downturn. How is that going to show up? What do you think that might manifest like that? I know you have some thoughts on what we'll see when and if, I'm going to say when, we do get that downturn. You know, I'll be looking overseas. I, I think we'll look back on history and remember the day that a South American company blew up and we woke up one day to find out that Mario Draghi and the European Central Bank had bought a, a bond just months before that was now worth pennies on the dollar. You know, we, we forced our banks to clean up after the financial crisis and to raise capital, and we find them to kingdom come. It wouldn't surprise me terribly, especially given all the geopolitical tensions, if the catalyst was to come not from within the United States, but from outside, from off of our shores. This has been a very global experiment in quantitative easing. 2017, we saw a record run rate. It's as if Lehman went out of business yesterday. And by this time next year, we will be talking about a trillion dollars less flowing into the markets between the Fed reducing the size of its balance sheet and the European Central Bank tapering its purchases. I don't think that we necessarily are strong enough to withstand the liquidity, the methadone, if you will, being taken away 
from the patient. But I would look for the catalyst to potentially come, again, from overseas. There's Danielle DiMartino Booth. She's the author of Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. That's a book you should definitely pick up and read in the new year. And of course, puts out great stuff at Money Strong. You can find that at DiMartinoBooth.com. Danielle, thanks for your input and uh, Happy New Year. And the same to you. Happy New Year. Take care. You're tuned to the Real Estate Guys radio program. More from our predictions panel when we come back. I'm your host, Robert Helms. Live nationwide, you're listening to The Real Estate Guys. Find out more at realestateguysradio.com. All aboard. Registration is now open for The Real Estate Guys 16th Annual Investor Summit. Imagine spending an entire week with like-minded investors, world-class educators, and real-world professionals. Returning this year are sales legend Tom Hopkins, international developer Beth Clifford, the authors of Prosper, Chris Martinson and Adam Taggart, and the author of The Creature from Jekyll Island, G. Edward Griffin. And joining us live and in person for his sixth Investor Summit, Peter Schiff. And lots more to be announced. It all begins April 6, 2018 in Fort Lauderdale. Visit realestateguysradio.com and click the tab that says Summit to learn more and reserve your spot. This transformational week is like no conference you've ever attended. Go to realestateguysradio.com and click Summit and make plans to spend a week with the Real Estate Guys and an all-star faculty on the 16th Annual Investor Summit at Sea. Don't miss the boat. Hi, this is Patrick Donahoe, CEO of Paradigm Life. Wall Street and banks spend billions of dollars per year in advertising with the goal to convince you that they are the solution. But take a look around. None of their advice has worked. If you're listening to this, odds are pretty good that you're already a real estate investor, or at least becoming one. So why do you do it? Is it to hedge inflation, the tax benefits, or maybe it's to get your money away from Wall Street? It's because of these benefits and so many more that I created the Real Estate Investor's Guide to the Perpetual Wealth Strategy. When you combine successful real estate investing with the Perpetual Wealth Strategy, you have the recipe for what has helped the wealthy to establish their financial well-being for decades. You can download the Real Estate Investor's Guide to the Perpetual Wealth Strategy today by clicking the Resources tab on the Real Estate Guys Radio homepage. Don't wait. Go download it now. Hey, it's Ken McElroy. I listen to the Real Estate Guys, and so should you. Welcome back to the Real Estate Guys radio program. I'm your host, Robert Helms, staring at a brand new blank year. Always an exciting time of year. And uh, we thought for today we'd uh, get out the crystal balls and take a look at what might happen in the new year. And no one knows for sure, but the gentleman we're about to talk to thinks about this stuff an awful lot. Please welcome back to the Real Estate Guys radio program. The amazing Chris Martinson. Hey, Chris. Hey, Robert. Really good to be back with you today. Well, good to have you on. It seems like you were just on the program talking about uh, the eight forms of capital, which is a fascinating topic. Today, we're really talking about uh, what we can expect in 2018 and, you know, an underlying message you guys always have, you and Adam, is about being prepared. So I would say, what uh, what are the big picture things you think we need to be prepared for in the new year? Well, I think 2018 is the year where the oil story really begins to change and it's going to change from one where there's a lot of oil to one where people start to recognize, well, there's just about enough, and then it goes into the future where, uh-oh, there isn't quite enough. So 2018 is that transition year for me. All right. Well, I can remember, you know, when I was a petroleum transfer agent for a little while there in uh, the 80s that, uh, you know, we had gas rationing and all those kinds of things. And it was predicted we were going to run out of oil. But then, of course, you know, technology comes and, and those things. And that kicked the can down the road a little bit. But one of the things you point out so brilliantly is anytime you're talking about a scarce resource, it cannot just continue to grow geometrically. Well, absolutely. And oil is the master resource. Everything else kind of flows from that. If you say we want more wind towers, you really you need more oil to put them up. And if you want more solar, well, you need more oil to transport them, manufacture them, install them. Oil is how more than 95% of everything moves across the globe. And of course, we have a just-in-time global economy. Stuff is manufactured in China, but the components might have come from Taiwan, the raw materials from Africa. That's the world. So oil is really important. And uh, yes, we've been supplied for a while, but a little complexity in this market. I like people to educate them so they can begin to understand the complexities because, of course, as you know, as a real estate investor, you don't just buy buildings. You buy this building or commercial, you know, uh, rental, a multifamily. They're all different. 
Oil isn't just this one thing. It's a variety of things. It comes from really heavy and sour to light and sweet, and, and there's a lot of interesting details under there. But the summary is this. We're kind of swimming in a kind of oil that the world has plenty of, and we're running out of a different kind, and that's really where the story is shaping up. And it's beginning to have huge geopolitical realignments across China, Russia, Saudi Arabia. Very interesting what's going on. Yeah, and you know, I don't know that we all are tuned into it. And certainly the major media isn't reporting the same things that, say, you guys talk about. Well, no, it's, I think, too complex for the mainstream media. You know, they really like their stuff simple. You know, uh, look at, for example, Puerto Rico is already completely out of the news cycle even though there are whole portions which are still without power, clearly it's a very big story to the people who are living there, but mainstream media has moved on. So this is where, of course, I make my living, and, and I, I love explaining these, to, these things to people, and, and we live in a complex world. So the details is where this story really comes alive, and it's just fascinating fascinating what's the transformation that's about to take place in the oil business well and let's talk about some of that because i think when we you know, think about gas prices i mean that's where the, the average person stops okay what do i have to pay for gas this week this month oh gas is going up gas is going down and the changes in the summer and then we look at the airline tickets and all those things but you you pointed out a point i don't want people to miss and that is there is the price of energy in every single thing we consume practically, it is a big factor in moving anything physically. Well, it is. It's also a factor in growing things. So if you look at the price of food over time and the price of oil, the price of food tracks the price of oil, not the other way around. Even the National Association of Home Builders recently released a, a nice chart showing the cost of doing business for them from an inflation standpoint, and they finally noticed, oops, if you overlay that with a price of oil chart, they line up perfectly so everybody from home builders to farmers to uh, people who move uh, clothing, everybody has to track the price of oil because it's such a critical input to either manufacture or move whatever it is that you're selling and buying. Yeah, and that is likely to continue, right? So I guess there's two parts of it. One is that there's the supply side. There's a fixed amount of it, and we're going to have more demand. And then there's what does that do to pricing? Is it just a, a fa the fact that everything's going to go up in value? And how do we rethink our use of oil? Now, this is where it, I think the story gets just super fascinating. Oil's a global commodity. It doesn't really matter how much you produce in Oklahoma. The price for it is set for how much that tanker is going to sell for that's shipping out of Oman or it's coming out of uh, the North Sea in the Brent fields or, or you know the Brent pricing contract, whatever. Oil's an international commodity. So Whoever is willing to pay the most for that, for a seaborne shipment or a pipeline shipment of oil, they're the person who sets the price. So if you're sitting there at the gas pump wondering why your, your prices are going up or down in California, you need to understand it's because of what people are paying halfway around the world for, for the next barrel that comes out of the ground. It's called the marginal barrel. So when we yep. look at that story, here's the, the most important data I've got, which is that China, the Beijing Petroleum University, it's state-funded, it's a very big place, it's filled with a lot of very technically gifted people. They looked at China's oil imports and their supply, their own domestic production, Robert, and they said, hey, big study came out just a few months ago. They said, hey, we're going to be peaking in oil in 2018, and we expect our imports to continue to climb uh, both because we're growing as an economy and because our domestic supply is going down. China's already the number one importer of oil in the world by far, and they're going to be consuming more and more and more. Now, they are that marginal buyer out there, but so is India, growing their consumption very rapidly. As well, most people don't know this, but a lot of the oil, petroleum exporting countries, OPEC, they're experiencing both rising demand domestically and kind of flat output for their production, so, so they have less to export. So you put all of this together, 2018 is the year that the oil markets rebalance, supply and demand come right back into balance if they aren't already. When supply is exceeded by demand in the oil space, that's when you see the marginal price drive the barrel. It's very, what they call inelastic, a little bit of shortfall in supply, and you see big, big swings in price. That's what we saw in 2008. I think we see something like 2008 again in the future. I'm not sure it hits in 2018, but that's where we see the setup for it. All right, good stuff. Hey, um, before we get you out of here, let's also talk a little bit about cryptocurrency, completely different than oil, right? Uh, you, of course, were on uh, the panel about that in New Orleans, and we talked a bit, but uh, I know you guys put an article about, out about this uh, recently. 
Um, take us through, you know, what, what your thoughts are on uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. So the technology itself we're completely in love with. We're just not smart enough to know who's going to win that particular battle. Uh, I am reasonably confident saying Bitcoin is one of the first entrants out of the gate. Hey, it's fantastic. I love the proof of concept. I love where it's gone. Is that going to be the, the, the piece of, of cryptocurrency that is the survivor in 10 years from now? I, I don't know, Robert. A little early for me to say because it's kind of like the idea of, of recording movies and being able to play them back at home. I love the technology. But was it Betamax? Was it VHS? Oops, nope, wait, it was DVDs. Wait, now we have Blockbuster. Oops, Netflix was the winner, right? Uh, it's a little <laughs> yeah. hard to predict who's going to be that winner at the end. Uh, I can tell you I love the technology, but if people are in Bitcoin or if they're in Ethereum or one of those, feel free to do that. Understand you're speculating and have just a speculative portion of your, of your investable money in that this is not investing at this stage. Uh, it's really more speculating. Chris and Adam get their mind around all kinds of stuff. And if you want to find out more about what they do, go to peakprosperity.com where they talk about uh, energy, the environment, Bitcoin, all kinds of stuff, occasionally even real estate. Hey, anything else for the new year that you guys are watching or thinking about as we prepare for 2018? Well, yeah, the biggest thing is the central banks are starting their unwind process. We'll see how far they go, but this is going to start creating headwinds in the market. So just watching for that and watching the credit markets very, very carefully this is a long expansion. A lot of things out there saying, hey, this, you know, we're watching carefully to see where this unfolds. So stay nimble. Lots of good investment opportunities out there, we think, still, but you're going to have to do your homework. All right. Good stuff. There's Chris Martinson, author of The Crash Course and, of course, Prosper. Always great to hear from you, Chris. We appreciate it, and Happy New Year to you. Thank you. Happy New Year to you as well. So there you have it, our predictions panel, part one for 2018. Lots of stuff out there, man. So I guess if we're halfway through, then we haven't done a 360 yet. We're only at a 180. We've done a 180. <laughs> We've done That's a 180. Right. And, and I don't know that we're going to do a full 360 because there's so much we could do. I mean, really, it was a, a, amazing getting a chance to talk to these folks, uh, especially since most of the guests, any of the number of the guests we had today, we could have done a whole show with. And, and we have in the past with some of them. But... This is to get the high notes, what's top of mind for them, what they're paying attention to. So your mission, of course, is to assemble all that and ask the big question, what does it mean to me? Now, you're only going to be able to ask half that question because the rest will happen next week. But be thinking about it and then listen to next week's show and take all that information and design an amazing 2018. Thanks to our incredible guests. We'll have more next week. And until then, go make some equity happen. Hello, this is Robert Kiyosaki, and I'm very excited that I'll be joining the real estate guys for their Investor Real Estate Summit at Sea. Join me, join my friends, join the real estate guys, Investor Summit at Sea, and I'll see you out there. Thank you very much. This episode of the Real Estate Guys Radio Show is brought to you by Paradigm Life, powerful cash management strategies using life insurance. Learn more at beyourbank.com. Mid-South Home Buyers, low-cost, turnkey cash flow properties in Memphis, Tennessee. Corporate Direct, asset protection strategies for real estate investors from attorney and rich dad advisor Garrett Sutton. Find these and other great companies under the Resources tab at realestateguysradio.com. To learn how you can expose your product or service to the Real Estate Guys audience, call 888-489-7723, extension 4. That's 888-489-7723, extension 4. Or use the feedback page at realestateguysradio.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week right here on the Real Estate Guys Radio Show.